Good evening, Uni Church. Um, today, our Bible reading will be taken from Romans, chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than, we f- than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. My name is John Forsyth. I have the great privilege of being the vicar at St. Jude's and uh, sharing this sermon moment with you. If we're having chicken moment, this is even more important. This is God's word moment. Uh, I spent uh, nine years at university, uh, some of the best nine years of my life, Uh, and in addition to the infinite wisdom that I gained from studying not just one but two arts degrees, a shout out to your art students there, uh, I inherited a very large student debt. Uh, It has now been more than nine years since I finished my most recent iteration of university, and I still have a very large student debt. Uh, And I'm not sure whether it will be paid off, but that's okay. Debts uh, are things that we generally don't like to carry around with us. The sense of obligation and weight that we owe something to someone can often sit heavily. It can be a, a debt like I have with my student fees, or it can be perhaps a debt that we owe someone because of something we've done. And and that sense of obligation can be at times off-putting. But what Paul teaches us tonight is, brothers and sisters, it is really good to be in debt. In fact, it's so good to be in debt because we have a debt that we cannot pay off. And that's a good thing. Now, where are we in Romans? Well, we are working our way through the kind of final chunk of Romans, from Romans uh, 12 to 16. And in the very beginning, I'm going to do the whole Romans summary, but 1 to, uh, 1 to 11, we've seen God's great love for us in the gospel, how we are sinners, but we are uh, justified through the work of Christ. Uh, and in 12 to 16, is a real working out. Well, in light of that mercy, says Paul in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, This is how we are to live out. This is how we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And last week we saw chapter 13 was about uh, how uh, submission to authorities is an expression of love for other people. 
And tonight we pick up continuing in verse 8. And here is the great debt, the beautiful debt that we all have. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. That's Paul's really big point in this section from 8 to 14. Let no debt remain outstanding. John, pay off your student debt. Except the debt of love. Notice too, uh, it's different to most debts. Most debts like taxes or mortgage or student debt, you're expected to pay off with the hope that one day you will pay it off. And God willing, when you graduate and get your job, you can, you can pay back any debts you have uh, to the university that you're studying at. But notice here, we're being told that this is a debt that we can't pay off. It's a continuing debt. You owe just as much after you've made the payment as you did before you made the payment. And what what we're being taught here is you you can't kind of pay off the amount of love and say, well, that's it for the month. I've done my love for the month. I'm fully paid up for love for today and you can wait till next month before you get some love. Now, the fact that we're being called to love, I hope isn't exactly new. Uh, If it is new that you're being called to love people, great. May that be the thing you take home from tonight's sermon. But notice here that Paul uses the language of debt around love, which seems like an unusual image or metaphor to use, particularly around love. Well, in one level, there's a kind of thematic link. Right to the previous verses, he's been speaking about what we owe in terms of taxes and honour. So there's a kind of a thematic link to the previous section, which kind of keeps our brains ticking along. But it still leaves us with the question... How can love be a debt, and in particular a continuing debt that you have no chance of paying off? And how is that meant to inspire you to love? It sounds horrible. You have a debt you can't pay off. Oh, great. That's what we'd normally expect. And the answer is, well, because this debt is completely upside down. It's an upside down debt. Here's here's the key thing. The reason love is a debt is because God, in his love, has already paid our debt in full. The reason why love is a debt is because God, in his love, has already paid our debt in full. You should be slightly confused at this point. I'm getting that look, that blank look, that's good. The debt of love we have for one another is not because other people owe us. Okay, that's not the way the debt is working here. No, it's because the Lord Jesus has done everything we need. He has paid our debt in full. He has taken away our sin and our guilt. We stand with no condemnation. And because of that payment, that complete and utter payment, we are now free to give unconditionally, permanently, continually, as a debt we cannot pay off. Now you might think, look, aren't we then debtors to Jesus after all because he's paid the price. It's his love which has redeemed us. And it's true, Jesus' love has redeemed us. But here's the, point, here's the really important thing. Jesus' love sets us free to unconditionally love each other. 
We are so filled with his love that, that, that we cannot help but leak out and go to other people. It, that's where the unconditionalness comes from. That's where the eternalness of our love comes from. Not our own strength, not our own love, but ultimately from God. And by the way, you actually can't pay Jesus back. You actually, the debt that we owe Christ is so huge, uh, it's, we cannot even touch the sides of his grace and love for you. In fact, Scripture teaches us that each and every one of our good deeds are actually enabled by his grace. Read Ephesians 2. Therefore, each time you do a good thing, guess what? You go into more debt. (laughs) We can't pay off the debt. And in fact, paying off the debt would completely undermine the idea that it's grace. Grace, of course, means a gift. And one thing about gifts is... They are not business transactions. They are unpaid, free gifts. Now let's say that someone at Uni Church was feeling very, very generous. They said, John, great work as vicar. Uh, I'd like to buy you a 1957 Fender Stratocaster guitar. Theoretically speaking, right? theoretically. Purely, do I emphasise how theoretical this was? And in your kindness, you give it to me. I'm very thankful. I say, that is great, Jack. Thank you. How much do I owe you? How much do I owe you? It doesn't work that way, does it? That completely undermines what grace is. If grace is not free, it's not grace. If God's love becomes conditional, it's no longer conditional love, uh, unconditional love. And so what we see at the heart of the gospel is this unconditional love for you. Which means you are then able to unconditionally love other people. Because as human beings, we are not able to love somebody unconditionally unless someone first loves us unconditionally. And normally it works this way with human relationships. I'll love you as much as you can love me. And I might wait till you love me first and I'll respond in kind. But that can't work in Christian community. The reason that you can love somebody else, your brother and sister, is not because they love you, which I hope they do, by the way. We're not talking romantic love, by the way. We're talking, you know, Christian family love. The reason you can love them is because God has first loved you unconditionally. And that's why the amount of love you have to give is is without end. It's like a credit card with no limit. Keep loving. Keep going. Don't stop. It's love without strings. It's love without ceasing because Christ has loved you first. This is Paul's big point in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. It's a continuing debt. So why do we do this? Well, uh, Paul in this particular context give us two reasons why. And the first one is continuing on from verse 8. He says, for, that is here's the reason why love is like this uh, unpayable debt, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Fulfilled the law, that's why you love. Now that doesn't once again sound very motivational, does it? We need to understand what is Paul saying here. 
Notice as he goes on in verse 9 and following, he actually lists some of the Ten Commandments. Uh, He lists four of them there in verse 9. And he also goes on to say, and whatever the other command there may be, they are summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. So Paul is saying, if you were to sum up the entire Old Testament law, we know it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and love your neighbour as yourself. That's how you summarise the law. And in fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God and the last six are about loving your neighbour as yourself. Now the question is, well, why on earth is law connected to love? We don't kind of see them naturally going together, right? Love's about doing things and loving. Law's about don't do this and do this. Isn't that what the police do? And it doesn't seem like a connection. Well, to understand what's going on, we actually need to see the biblical story of God's law. We go back to the Old Testament, what we see is God gathering up a people for himself and he gives them the law, not so they can become his people, to kind of pass this test and then you can become my people. No, he says, no, no, I'll make you my people first and then afterwards I will give you my law to show you how to love. In other words, law is a response to grace, not the cause of God's approval. God didn't give them this and say, look, here's the law, as long as you obey it, then at the end, then I'll see if you're good enough to be my people. He says, no, no, you're not good enough, but I love you anyway. And now I'll give you this law to show you how to love. Because we are bad at loving as human beings. It's the reason why we have speed limits. You know why we have speed limits? Because I'm terrible at loving people on the roads. My natural inclination is to be, is to be, to be angered by all the idiots out there, particularly on the eastern freeway, that don't keep left. That don't. And I, my sinfulness is there, just lurking on the right foot as I push the accelerator down and, and helpfully wave to the person next to me to indicate where they should go. That is the sinfulness of my heart. And what does the Lord do? It says, John, you are sinful. You must not go beyond this speed. It is not safe. You do not know what is safe and loving. You need a seatbelt, John. Why? Because you're dumb enough to think that you will survive a crash. You are sinful enough to think that somehow you're special. And so what what God in his mercy does in giving us law, it's a concrete way of teaching us how to love each other. And therefore, if you want to respond to God's love for you, then your love should, should reflect his law. He knows what is right and good and proper for human beings to thrive and to love. Therefore, we follow God's law. We look to his word to say, show us how to live and show us how to love. That's how love fulfills the law. It teaches us how to love when our hearts are inclined elsewhere. And what that means is love is not some kind of special category of behaviour. It kind of seeks and soaks into every single part of our lives and every single part of our behaviours. We see this in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7. Now this is the verse that I've done a a bajillion weddings but close to it, And it's always the verse that everybody wants read at at weddings. And I can see why. It's a really, really good verse about about, what a husband and wife should do. 
But the danger is we limit it to this kind of romantic love. And love is patient and kind and um, true. But brothers and sisters, this, this is the language for our Christian community. Not just for happily married couples. And so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 where, where Paul speaks about love as character and the way we interact with each other. But what I imagine is that it's talking about you. Okay? So this is a passage Paul's writing about you and what you'll find is certain bits will jar up against your, your, your conscience. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Well, that rules out most of social media. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, brothers and sisters, is that a description of you? Because if I'm honest with myself, it is not a description of me. And it shows me where I need to work where I need to ask God to work with his spirit to change my character to be a character of love. And Paul goes on and says, love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, A very famous quote, of course, which Jesus himself has said previously. And I've got a, uh, uh, this is a, non-rhetorical question. We all know what a rhetorical question is. That was, that was a joke, by the way. Anyone know what a joke is? Um, can anyone tell me what is Paul referring to? Some famous, a very famous parable. Now you need to tell me the name of the parable and where it is in Scripture and I'll buy you dinner. Ooh, everyone's like, wow, this is, this is my act of love. I'm, putting, I'm practicing what I preach Literally. Love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus is talking to someone who is my neighbour, something, something, something from a certain part of scripture. You can cheat and look at your Bible, by the way. Uh, not, that's not cheating. That's what I want you to do. Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan. And if you can tell me where it's from, I'm buying you dinner. <laughs> if you can tell me which part of scripture it's from. <laughs> New Testament is not enough. I need a bit more than New Testament. <laughs> the vibe. No, steal away. It's, all where it's, it's brotherly and sisterly stealing. It's all good. It's in Luke. Would you say Luke chapter 10, if you were guessing? Yes, yes, yes excellent. <laughs> Luke 10, right? The famous, the good Samaritan, right? And the question is asked, who is my neighbour? Because Jesus said, you need to love your neighbour as yourself. Um, the idea of who your neighbour is is... We haven't got time to go into all of that. But what I want to notice here is uh, this command assumes that we love ourselves already. (laughs) Love your neighbour as yourself. And I think it's worth pausing and unpacking the second half of that just a little bit. What does it mean to love our neighbours as we love ourselves? Now, by the way, I don't think what Paul is saying here, or Jesus is saying previously, is that we are good at loving ourselves and that we love ourselves well I think what Paul and Jesus are both reflecting on is we have a natural inclination to seek our own welfare first. 
In other words, we are naturally selfish. We're not always good at expressing that, but that's our natural thing. I know what makes me happy, or I think I do. And I'll pursue those things with a certain excitement and desire and focus and priority. And what Paul and Jesus are teaching us here is that same passion and desire and almost without thought uh, priority to, to kind of seek what's best for ourselves, what we think is best for ourselves, that should be the same for other people. It's not about our self-esteem or whether we're good at it. It's saying, is there an inbuilt desire in your heart to love others? In other words, make the degree of your self-seeking the measure of your self-giving. As a good friend of mine puts it, be as generous as you are extravagant. Be as generous as you are extravagant. So what, what, my, what my friend does is when he wants to buy him something nice, it might be, his, uh, I don't know, a new bike or whatever it is, he says, it's going to cost me this much money. I will give away the same amount of money. Just a practical way of living out. I'm not trying to be pharisaical about it, but thinking, how am I intentionally using this? How am I intentionally seeking to love other people? Because my heart will always bend towards loving myself. Be as generous as you are extravagant. If you're genuous, uh, genu- uh, sorry, generous in pursuing your own happiness, be genuous, uh, genuous, I can't say it right, in the pursuing of your own happiness. If you're, how about this word? If you're energetic, how about that? We'll go with that. Generous is the word, John. Uh, if you're energetic in pursuing your own happiness, be energetic in your pursuit of others. If you're creative in the pursuit of your own happiness, be creative in the pursuit of loving others. If you persevere and push through serving yourself, then persevere and push through in serving others. In other words, Paul is not saying seek the same things that you like for yourself or other people. I mean, you might, you might be into flower pressing. I'm not into flower pressing, that's okay. But it's that same passion and desire to serve yourself. Turn that outwards. Turn that away from yourself and turn it to others. That is how love fulfills the law. That is how we love our neighbours as ourselves. That's the first point. We are to love because love fulfills the law. The law of love. Um, The second point that Paul makes is from verse 11 onwards and it's a slightly different take. Paul says... We have this love of debt which which remains outstanding and we do this understanding the present time. Notice that in verse 11. Understanding this, uh, understand, uh, do this understanding the present time. Now what is the present time that Paul is talking about? And he's talking about theological time, not chronological time. He's not saying that it's a Wednesday afternoon or whether he's writing this or something's about to happen. Now he's saying, what, what is our theological time? Well, it's between Jesus coming and Jesus' return. The, the, the kind of theological time we live in now, it's sometimes referred to as the overlapping of ages or uh, sometimes be called the now and not yet, uh, lots of different languages for it. And, and what it recognises is that as Christians, uh, this world is sitting between two things. We live in this age and this age is an age of sin and darkness. And it's an age marked with brokenness and sinfulness and sadness and death 
uh, back in chapter 12, Paul speaks about the pattern of this world, literally the, the era or age of this world. But we also live in the age to come, the age of grace and righteousness and peace and life. And we live in both. And therefore we see, we see both as followers of Christ. And Paul is saying, this is the present time. We live in this time. So what do we do? The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That's Paul's message to us in love. Now, what does that mean? Well, when I was back at school, I did army cadets, which I absolutely loved. And one of the things we got to do was Anzac Day services. And they start very, very early in the morning. At 4.20 a.m. you had to be there. Uh, and during the service, which was about two hours long, it started in, in, in complete darkness. And I had to uh, stand and kind of do a guard of honour around the, the war memorial place in our local suburb. Uh, and you'd sit there and you had to stand quietly without fainting for two hours in the freezing cold. And by the end of the service, it was bright. But it was really, really hard to say at which point it stopped being dark and it started being light. It was subtle and gradual. And this is the idea of a new day dawning. It's the idea that the image that Paul uses when he says in verse 12, the night is nearly over and the day is almost here. It's both dark and lights at the same time it's it's both day and it's both night he's trying to capture that ambiguity it's not as if the suddenly sun comes just pops up like turning a light on hey 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 god turn on the light like google or something blinding you no there's it's it's gradual and both are happening at the same time and so this present time is both a time of darkness and night is literally an ungodly hour so if you hate getting up early and say, oh, this is an ungodly hour, that's a biblical description of getting up too early. Were you art students before 10 a.m.? It's an ungodly hour. It's still dark. But Paul is saying, yes, but the dawn will come any moment. Now we have to remember, of course, this is the first century AD. This, this is not the internet. This is not lights. There's not even electricity. Or there is electricity, but it's not running through wires because there are no wires. Uh, in other words, when, when it gets dark, it's dark. And with the kind of the closest we get is during a, a blackout. And we all kind of freak out, right? We don't know what to do. We kind of get overwhelmed by the darkness. I remember as a, as, a, as a teenager, these are all the stories that I don't tell my kids because they're teenagers, uh, we used to find this train tunnel and walk through it at night time because it had a blind corner at the end. And you could not see a thing. But you could certainly hear it. Uh, everything was terrified a train was coming. But the whole idea is you, you can't see anything, you can't do anything. And in Jesus' time and Paul's time, there are only two things you could do at night time. And they were sleep or sin. Now, why sin? Because under the cover of darkness, you can get up to all kinds of mischief. That was the idea. It's too dark to do anything constructive. You can't work. You can't care for people. It's sleep or sin. These are what Paul calls in verse 12, sin, the deeds of darkness. The things that you do because you think no one's watching. 
And Paul is saying the dawn is coming fast. If you're asleep, wake up. And if you're sinning, stop. And sleep is what people lost in this age are doing. When you're asleep, yet you have no idea of the reality around you. Dreams are vivid. The dreams of our culture says, follow your heart. But Paul is saying, wake up. That dream is just that. And so, brothers and sisters, be careful. Everything in this world that does not awaken your faith in Jesus will put you to sleep. It will numb you. It will distract you. It will say, just take your eyes off Jesus. Just, just for a moment. Just rest the eyes. And then you're asleep. And also we're to turn from sin. We need to repent from the sins that we think are hidden because they're done in darkness. Now we, we don't think of darkness in quite the same way because we don't live in a culture or in a, in a city where there is darkness. But let me tell you, there's absolutely the idea that we have sins and things that we, we kind of keep spiritually away and, and hidden away and we don't want anyone to know about. And Paul is saying, you can't hide them. They will be exposed. The sins done in private, that might be the words that we would use, not in darkness but in private. The quiet sins, the secret sins, they'll be revealed. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light, verse 12. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy. Why? Because all of those things are the opposite of love. They're the opposite. And all those things belong to the old age of sin and death. They don't belong to the new age of love and life that we're called to belong to. See, we need to know that because Christ has died for us, we already are perfect in God's eyes. We belong to that new age. And so therefore we need to ensure that our behaviour matches our identity. We belong to Christ, therefore let us act like Christ. We are children of light and life, therefore act like it. Romans 6 puts it this way, No longer present your members as as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to life, since you are not under law but grace. Put to death those sins. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. And just as the risen sun allows no one to hide in darkness, so the coming of the risen son of God will allow no one to hide the sin of their lives. See, in the darkness we can hide the shame and guilt. But it's impossible to do that when we are naked and exposed and shown in the full, harsh brightness of God's judgment. We need something to wear to cover our sin and our shame. And more precise, we actually need someone to cover us, which is what we have in verse 14. Rather, clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is the really big point. In order to love each other, have that, that kind of uh, love without debt, we need to clothe ourselves with Christ. In other words, 
put him on. Live a life that reflects that we belong to him. That we belong to that day that is to come. Because only Christ is qualified to clothe us. He is the one who was stripped naked so that we can be clothed. He's the one who bore our shame so we could be forgiven. The one on whom the spotlight, the searing spotlight of God's judgment fell in all its terrifying brightness because of our sin. It's the one who went into the darkness so that we can live as children of light. To clothe ourselves with Christ is to be attired for eternity. It is the armour of life. And I think, brothers and sisters, sometimes we're far too happy wearing the uri of this life. Right? Well, I'm not sure onesies are a thing anymore. Oh, anyone wearing? Please don't wear a onesie. You should never have worn a onesie. And the thing with an uri, it's comfortable, it's easy. You just slouch on the couch, right? That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is armour, which is action. It is preparation. It is ready for warfare. It is someone who is ready and awake at dawn to face the battle. Let's not fall asleep. The wonderful truth is, brothers and sisters, that our salvation is nearer now at the end of this sermon than it was at the beginning. Some of you are saying, praise the Lord for that. (laughs) And by some amount you might be thinking. And that is a wonderful truth to grasp hold of. Every second that passes is a second closer to where we'll see Christ face to face. It is a word of hope when we are only too aware of our failings and sin. For in the language of Scripture, most of our life we see Christ dimly, as in a mirror, we will see Christ face to face. That's what Paul is talking about here, about being closer to salvation. Not that your salvation is somehow less secure and it will become more secure. No, no, it's secure because Christ has died and risen. What's happened is we'll see him face to face. It'll become actualized. And in the midst of all this hope, in the midst of all these joys and frustrations, in our victories and losses, in our celebrations and pain, it is in Christ and Christ alone that we find hope. Because it is Christ and Christ alone who gives us the power to love each other without limit. So as we await that day for his return, let us, let us keep loving each other with the love of Christ. In a moment we're going to sing praising the name of our great God who has given us this love. But let me lead us in a prayer that we would do this. Our gracious Lord and Father, we thank you that you have first loved us. We thank you that out of your extraordinary love you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us through his death and resurrection. As your people, may we leave no debt outstanding except the continuing debt to love each other. We ask that by your Spirit, we will seek to love you with all our heart and soul and strength.
and to love our neighbours as ourselves. And Father, as we await the return of Christ, may we be alert and awake, eager to serve and love, putting aside the deeds of darkness and putting on the armour of light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.